Chapter 12 of The Autobiography of a Thief. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Autobiography of a Thief by Hudgens Hapgood. Chapter 12 On the Outside Again. My time on the second bit was drawn to a close. I was eager to get out, of course, but I knew way down in my mind that it would only be to graft again. I made a resolution that I would regain my health and gather a little fall money before I started in hard again on the rocky path. On the day of my release, Warden Sage called me into his office and talked to me like a friend. He did not know that I was a second-timer, or he might not have been so kind to me. He was a humane man, and in spite of his belief in the stool pigeon system, he introduced good things into Sing Sing. He improved the condition of the cells, and we were not confined there so much as we had been before he came. On my first term, many a man stayed for days in his cell without ever going out. One man was confined twenty-eight days on bread and water. But under Mr. Sage, punishments were not so severe. He even used to send delicacies to men chained up in the Catholic chapel. I should like to say a good word for head keeper Connaughton, too. He was not generally liked, for he was a strict disciplinarian, but I think he was one of the best keepers in the country. He was stern, but not brutal, and when a convict was sick, Mr. Connaughton was very kind. He was not deceived by the fake lunatics, and used to say, If you go to the madhouse, you are liable to become worse. If you are all right in the morning, I will give you a job out in the air. Although Mr. Connaughton had little schooling, he was an intelligent man. I believe the best thing that community can do to reform criminals is to have a more intelligent class of keepers. As a rule, they are ignorant, brutal, and stupid, underpaid, and inefficient. Yet what is more important for the state's welfare than an intelligent treatment of convicts? Short terms, too, are better than long ones, for when the criminal is broken down in health and made fearful, suspicious, and revengeful, what can you expect from him? However, in the mood I was in at the end of my second term, I did not believe that anything was any good as a preventive of crime. I knew that when I got on the outside, I wouldn't think of what might happen to me. I knew that I couldn't or wouldn't carry a hod. What ambition I had left was to become a more successful crook than I had ever been before. Warden Sage gave me some good advice, and then I left Sing Sing for New York. I did not get the pleasure from going out again that had been so keen after my first bit. My eyesight was failing now, and I was sick and dull. My only thought was to get back to my old haunts, and I drank several large glasses of whiskey at Sing Sing Town to help me on my way. I intended to go straight home, as I felt very ill, to my father and mother, but I didn't see them for several days after my return to New York. The first thing I did in the city was to deliver some messages from my fellow convicts to their relatives. My third visit for that purpose was to the home of a fine young fellow I knew in stir. It was a large family and included a married sister and her children. They were glad to hear from Bobby, and I talked to them for some time about him when the husband of the married sister came home and began to quarrel with his wife. He accused her of having strange men in the house, meaning me. The younger brother and the rest of the family got back at the brother-in-law and gave him better than they got. The little brother fired a lamp at him and he yelled murder. The police surrounded the house and took us all to the station house in the patrol wagon. And so I spent the first night after my return in confinement. It seemed natural, however. In the morning we were taken up before the magistrate and the mother and sister testified that I had taken them a message from their boy and had committed no offense. The brother-in-law blurted out that he had married into a family of thieves, and that I had just returned from Sing Sing. I was discharged, but fined five dollars. Blessed are the peacemakers, but not in my case. 
I passed the next day looking for old girls and pals, but I found few of them. Many were dead, and others were in stir or had sunk so far down into the underworld that even I could not find them. I was only about thirty-two years old, but I had already a long acquaintance with the past. Like all grafters, I had lived rapidly, crowding while at liberty several days into one. When I got back from my second bit, the greater part of my life seemed to be made up of memories of other days. Some of the pals I did meet again had squared it, others were dead, out of the game, and some had degenerated into mere bums. There are several different classes of dead ones. One, the man who has lost his nerve. He generally becomes a whiskey fiend. If he becomes hopelessly a soak, the better class of guns shun him, for he is no good to work with. He will not keep an engagement or will turn up at the place of meeting too late or too early. A grafter must be exactly on time. It is as bad to be too early as too late, for he must not be seen hanging around the place of meeting. Punctuality is more of a virtue in the underworld than it is in respectable society. The slackest people I know to keep their appointments are the honest ones, or grafters who have become whiskey fiends. These latter usually wind up with rock-gut booze and are sometimes seen selling songs on the Bowery. 2. The Man Who Becomes a Copper He is known as a stool pigeon and is detested and feared by all grafters. Nobody will go with him. Sometimes he becomes a Pinkerton man and is a useful member of society. When he loses his grip with the upper world, he belongs to neither, for the grafters won't look at him. 3. The Man Who Knows a Trade this grafter often squares it, is apt to marry and remain honest. His former pals who are still grafters treat him kindly for they know he's not a rat. They know too that he is a bright and intelligent man and that it is well to keep on the right side of him. Such a man has often educated himself in stir and when he squares it is apt to join a political club and is called in by the leader to help out in an election, for he possesses some brains. The gun is apt to make him an occasional present, for he can help the grafter in case of a fall because of his connection with the politicians. This kind of dead one often keeps his friends the grafters, while in stir, next to the news in the city. 4. The gun who is supposed to square it. This grafter has got a bunch of money together and sees a good chance to open a gin mill or a Rain's Law hotel or a gambling joint. He knows how to take care of the repeaters and is handy about election time. In return, he gets protection for his illegal business. He is a go-between and is on good terms with coppers and grafters. He supplies the grafter who has plenty of fall money with bondsmen, makes his life in the tombs easy, and gets him a good job while in stir. This man is supposed to be dead, but he is really very much alive. Often a copper comes to him and asks him for the whereabouts of some grafter or other. He will reply, perhaps, I hear he is in Europe or in the West. The copper looks wise and imagines he is clever. The dead one sneers and, like a wise man, laughs in his sleeve, for he is generally in communication with the man looked for. 5. The Sure Thing Grafter He is a man who continues to steal, but wants above everything to keep out a stir where he has spent many years. So he goes back to the petty pilfering he did as a boy. General Brace and the professor belong to this class of dead ones. The second night I spent on the Bowery after my return from my second bit, I met Laudanum Joe, who is another good example of this kind of dead one. At one time, he made thousands of dollars, but now he is discouraged and nervous. He looked bad, poorly dressed, but was glad to see me. How is graft? 
he asked. I've left the rocky path, I replied, thinking I would throw a few cons into him. I'm walking straight, not in the religious line either. He smiled, which was tantamount to saying that I lied. What are you working at? he asked. I'm looking for a job, I replied. Jimmy, is it true that you're pipes? Crazy. I heard you got buggy. Crazy. In your last bit. Joe, I replied, you know I was never bothered above the ears. If you're going to carry the hod, he said, you might as well go to the pipe house and let them cure you. Have you given up smoking, too? He continued. He meant the hop. I conned him again and said, yes. He showed the old, peculiar, familiar grin and said, Say, I have no coin. Take me with you and give me a smoke. I tried to convince him that there was nothing in it, but he was a doubter. What are you doing, Joe? I asked. Oh, just getting a few shillings, he replied, meaning that he was grafting. Why don't you give up the booze, I asked. I had made a break, for he said quickly, Why, because I don't wear a Piccadilly collar? All grafters of any original caliber are super sensitive, to a point very near insanity. Laudanum Joe thought I had reference to his dress, which was very bum. Joe, I said, I never judge a man by his clothes, especially one that I know. Jimmy, he said, the truth is, I can't stand another long bit in stir. I do a little petty pilfering that satisfies my wants. A cup of tea, plenty of booze, a little hop. If I fall, I only go to the workhouse for a couple of months. The screws know I have seen better days, and I can get a graft of my booze while there. If I ain't as prosperous as I was once, why not dream I'm a millionaire? Some grafters who have been prosperous at one time fall even lower than Laudanum Joe. When they get fear knocked into them and can't do without whiskey, they sink lower and lower. Hungry Bob is another example. I grafted with him as a boy, but when I met him on the Bowery after my second bit, I hardly knew him, and at first he failed to recognize me entirely. I got him into a gin mill, however, and he told how badly treated he had been just before we met. He had gone into a saloon kept by an old pal of his who had risen in the world and asked him for fifteen cents to buy a bed in a lodging house. Go long, you panhandler, beggar, said his old friend. Poor Bob was badly cut up about it and talked about ingratitude for a long time. But he had his lodging money, for a safecracker who knew Hungry Bob when he was one of the gayest grafters in town happened to be in the saloon, and he gave the bum fifteen cents for old time's sake. How is it, Bob, I said to him, that you're not so good as you were? You want to know what put me on the bum, he answered. Well, it's this way. I can't trust nobody, and I have to graft alone. That's one thing. Then, too, I like the booze too much, and when I'm sitting down I can't get up and go out and hustle the way I used to. Hungry Bob and I were sitting in a resort for sailors and hard luck grafters in the lower bowery when a sheeny I knew came in. Hello, Jim, he said. How's graft, Mike, I replied. Don't mention it. What makes you look so glum? I'm only after being turned out of police court this morning. What was the rap, Mike? I'm looking too respectable. They asked me where I got the clothes. I told them I was working, which is true. I've been a waiter for three months. The flyman took me to headquarters. I was gathered in to make a reputation for those two shoe flies. Whenever I square it and go to work, I am nailed regularly because my mug is in the Hall of Fame. When I'm arrested, I lose my job every time. Nobody knows you now, Jim. You could tear the town open. 
I made a mental resolution to follow Mike's advice very soon, as soon as my health was a little better. Just then Jack, a boyhood pal of mine, who knew the old girls, Sheenie Annie and the rest, came in. I was mighty glad to see him and said so to him. I guess you've got the advantage of me, bloke, was his reply. Don't you remember Jimmy the Kid ten years ago in the sixth? I jogged his memory with the names of a few pals of a years ago, and when he got next he said, I wouldn't have known you, Jim. I thought you were dead many years ago in stir. I heard it time and time again. I thought you were past and gone. After a short talk, I said, Where's Shaney Annie? Dead, he replied. Mamie? I asked. Dead, he replied. Lucy? In stir. Swedish Emmy? She's married. Any good malls now? I'm only after getting back from stir and am not next, I said. Tain't like old times, Jim, he said. The malls won't steal now. They ain't got brains enough. They're not innocent. They're ignorant. All they know how to do is the badger. I went with Jack to his house, where he had an opium layout. There we found several girls and grafters, some smoking hops, some with the subtle cigarette between their lips. I was introduced to an English grafter named Harry. He said he was blooming glad to see me. He was just back from the West, he said, but I thought it was the pen. He began to abuse the states, and I said, You duffer, did you ever see such pretty girls as here? Did you ever wear a collar and tie in the old country? He grew indignant and shouted, Holy cobblestones! In this bleeding country I've had two hundred bucks, dollars, saved up every time, but I never spend a cent of it. How the hell am I better off here? I'm only stealing for certain mugs, policemen. And for those higher up, so they can buy real estate. They enjoy their life in this country and Europe off my hard-earned money and the likes of me. They die as respected citizens. I die in a workhouse as an outcast. Don't be prattin' about your bleeding country. As soon as I had picked out a good mob to join, I began to graft again. Two of my new pals were safe blowers, and we did that graft and day work, as well as the old reliable dippin'. But I wasn't much at the graft during the seven months I remained on the outside. My health continued bad, and I did not feel like jumping out so much as I had done formerly. I did not graft except when my funds were very low, and so, of course, contrary to my plans, I saved no fall money. I had a girl, an opium layout, and a furnished room, where I used to stay most of the time, smoking with pals who, like myself, had the keen edge of their ambition taken off. I had a strange longing for music at that time. I suppose because my nerves were weaker than they used to be. I kept a number of musical instruments in my room and used to sing and dance to amuse my visitors. During these seven months that I spent mainly in my room, I used to reflect and philosophize a lot, partly under the influence of opium. I would moralize with a girl or to a friend or commune with my own thoughts. I often got in a state of mind where everything seemed a joke to me. I often thought of myself as a spectator watching the play of life. I observed my visitors and their characteristics, and after they had left for the evening, loved to size them up in words for Lizzie. My eyes were so bad that I did not read much, but I took it out in epigrams and wise sayings. I will give a few specimens of the kind of philosophy I indulged in. You always ought to end a speech with a sneer or a laconic remark. It is food for thought. The listener will pause and reflect. It is not what you make, but what you save, that counts. It isn't the big cracksman who gets along, it is the unknown dip who saves his earnings. 
To go to Germany to learn the language is as bad as being in stir for ten years. Jump out and be a man and don't join the Salvation Army. Always say to the dip who says he wants to square it, well, what's your other graft? When a con gets home, he is apt to find his sweetheart married, and a Madonna of the wash tubs. He made good money and was a swell grafter, but he got stuck on a Tommy that absorbed his attention, and then he lost his punctuality and went down and out. Do a criminal a bodily injury and he may forget. Wound his feelings and he will never forgive. Most persons have seen a cow or a bull with a board put around its head in such a way that the animal can see nothing. It is a mode of punishment. Soon the poor beast will go mad if the board is not removed. What chance has the convict, confined in a dark cell for years to keep his senses? He suffers from astigmatism of the mind. I am as much entitled to an opinion as any other quack on the face of the earth. General Grant is one of my heroes. He was a boy at fifteen. He was a boy when he died. A boy is loyalty personified. General Grant had been given a task to do, and like a boy, he did it. He was one of our greatest men, and belongs with Tom Paine, Benjamin Franklin, and Robert Ingersoll. Why don't we like the books we liked when we were boys? It is not because our judgment is better, but because we have a dream of our own now, and want authors to dream along the same lines. The only gun with principles is the minor grafter. The weakest man in the universe is he who falls from a good position and respectable society into the world of graft. Forgers and defaulters are generally of this class. A professional gun who has been a thief all his life is entitled to more respect. In writing a book on crime, one ought to have in mind to give the public a truthful account of a thief's life, his crimes, habits, thoughts, emotions, vices and virtues, and how he lives in prison and out. I believe this ought to be done, and the man who does it well must season his writings with pathos, humor, sarcasm, tragedy, and thus give the real life of the grafter. Sympathy with a grafter who is trying to square it is a tonic to his better self. The other day I was with a reporter and society lady who was seeing the town. The lady asked me how I would get her diamond pin. It was fastened in such a way that to get it, strong-arm work would be necessary. I explained how I would put the mug on her while my husky pal went through her. But, she said, that would hurt me. As if grafters cared. What a selfish lady to be always thinking of herself. Life is the basis of philosophy. Philosophy is an emanation from our daily routine. After a convict has paced his cell a few thousand times, he sometimes has an idea. Philosophy results from life put through a mental process, just as opium, when subjected to a chemical experiment, produces laudanum. Why, therefore, is not life far stronger than a narcotic? I believe in platonic love, for it has been in my own life. A woman always wants love, whether she is eighteen or eighty, real love. Many is the time I have seen the wistful look in some woman's eye when she saw that it was only good fellowship or desire on my part. 
In this age of commerce there is only one true friendship, the kind that comes through business. An old adage has it that all things come to him who waits. Yes, poverty, old age, and death. The successful man is he who goes and gets it. If thy brother assaults you, do not weep, nor pray for him, nor turn the other cheek, but assail him with the full strength of your muscles, for man at his best is not lovable, nor at his worst detestable. There is more to be got in Germany, judging from what Dutch Lonzo used to say, than in England or America. Only the Dutchmen are too thick-headed to find it out. A first-class gun in Germany would be ranked as a ninth-rater here. Grafters are like the rest of the world in this. They always attribute bad motives to a kind act. From flim-flam, returning short change, to burglary is but a step, provided one has the nerve. Why would a woman take to him, a sober, respectable man but lacking in temperament, unless she wanted a good home? If there is anything detestable, it is a grafter who will steal an overcoat in the wintertime. Look for the woman. A fly cop gets many a tip from some tidbit in whom a grafter has reposed confidence. I did not do, as I have said, any more grafting than was necessary during these seven months at liberty. But I observed continually, living in an opium dream, and my pals were more and more amusing to me. When I thought about myself and my superior intelligence, I was sad, but I thought about myself as little as possible. I preferred to let my thoughts dwell on others, who I saw were a fine line of cranks and rogues. Somewhere in the 80s, before I went to stir, there was a synagogue at what is now 101 Hester Street. The synagogue was on the first floor, and on the ground floor was a gin mill run by an ex-central office man. Many pickpockets used to hang out there, and they wanted to drive the Jews out of the first floor so they could lay out a pharaoh game there. So they swore and carried on most horribly on Saturdays when the rabbi was preaching and finally got possession of the premises. Only a block away from this old building was a famous place for dips to get books in the old days. Nearby was Ridley's Dry Goods Store, in which there were some cash girls who used to tip us off to who had the books and were up to the graft themselves. They would yell cash and bump up against the sucker while we went through him. The Jews were few in those days, and the Irish were in the majority. On the corner of Allen and Hester Street stood the saloon of a well-known politician. Now a Jew has a shop there. Who would think that an Isaacs would supersede a Finnegan? At the gin mill on Hester Street, I used to know a boy dip named Buck. When I got back from my second bit, I found he had developed into a boxman and had a peculiar disposition, which exists outside as well as inside Grafton. He had $1,800 in the bank and a fine red front, gold watch and chain, but he was not a good fella. He used to invite three or four guns to have a drink and would order Hennessy's brandy, which cost 20 cents a glass. After we had had our drinks, he would search himself and find perhaps 20 cents in his clothes. He got into me several times before I blew. One time, after he had ordered drinks, he began the old game and said he thought he had $18 with him and must have been touched. Then he took out his gold watch and chain and threw it on the bar. But who would take it? I went down, of course, and paid for the drinks. When we went out together, he grinned and said to me, I pity you. 
You will never have a bank account, my boy. The next time Buck threw down his watch and said he would pay in the morning, I thought it was dirt, for I knew he had fifty dollars on him. So I said to the bartender, take it and hock it and get what he owes you. This chump has been working it all up and down the line. I won't be touched by the damn grafter any more. Buck was ready-witted and turning to the bartender, he said, my friend here is learning how to play poker and has just lost eighteen dollars. He is a dead sore loser and is rattled. We went out with the watch without paying for our drinks, and he used to say to me, Jim, I don't believe in paying a gin mill keeper. If the powers that be were for the people instead of for themselves, they would have such drinkables free on every corner in old New York. The next time Buck asked me to have a drink, I told him to go to a warm place in the next world. Buck was good to his family. He was married and had a couple of brats. Many a man educates himself in stir, as was my case. Jimmy, whom I ran up against one day on the street, is a good example. He had squared it and is still on the level. When I saw him after my second bit, he was making $40 a week as an electrical engineer, and every bit of the necessary education he got in prison. At one time he was an unusually desperate grafter, and entirely ignorant of everything except the technique of graft. Many years ago he robbed a jewelry store and was sent to Blackwell's Island for two years. The night of the day he was released he burglarized the same store and assaulted the proprietor. He was arrested with the goods on him and brought to General Sessions before Recorder Smythe, who had sentenced him before. He got ten years at Sing Sing in Auburn, and for a while he was one of the most dangerous and desperate of convicts, and made several attempts to escape. But one day, a book on electricity fell into his hands, and from that time on, he was a hard student. When he was released from stir, he got a job in a large electrical plant up the state, and worked for a while, when he was tipped off by a country grafter who had known him in stir. He lost his job and went to New York, where he met me, who was home after my first term. I gave him the welcome hand, and after he told me his story, I said, well, there's plenty of money in town. Jump out with us. He grafted with me and my mob for a while, but got stuck on a Tommy, so we could not depend on him to keep his appointments, and we dropped him. After that, he did some strong-arm work with a couple of gorillas and fell again for five years. When he returned from stir, he got his present position as electrical engineer. He had it when I met him after my second bit, and he has it today. I am sure he is on the level, and will be, so long as he holds his job. About this time I was introduced to a peculiar character in the shape of a few yards of calico. It was at Carey's place on Bleecker Street that I first saw this good-looking youth of nineteen dressed in the latest fashion. His graft was to masquerade as a young girl, and for a long time short-haired Liz, as we called him, was very successful. He sought employment as maid in well-to-do families, and then made away with the valuables. One day he was nailed, with charges against him. He was convicted on the testimony of a chambermaid, with whom, in his character of lady's maid, he had had a lark. Mr. R., who was still influential, did his best for him, for his fall money was big, and he only got a light sentence. I heard one day that an old pal of mine, Danny, had just been hanged. It gave me a shock, for I had often grafted with him when we were kids. As there were no orchards on the streets of the east side, Danny and I used to go to the improvised gardens that lined the sidewalks outside of the green grocer's shops and make away with strawberries, apples, and other fruits. By nature, I suppose boys are no more bothered with consequences than are police officials. Danny rose rapidly in the world of graft and became very dangerous to society. As a grafter, he had one great fault. He had a very quick temper. 
He was sensitive and lacking in self-control, but he was one of the cleverest guns that ever came from the Sixth Ward, a place noted for good grafters of both sexes. He married a respectable girl and had a nice home, for he had enough money to keep the police from bothering him. If it had not been for his bad temper, he might be grafting yet. He would shoot at a moment's notice, and the toughest of the hard element were afraid of him. One time he had it in for an old pal of his named Patty. For a while, Patty kept away from the saloon on Pell Street where Danny hung out, but Patty, too, had nerve, and one day he turned up at his old resort, the Drum, as it was called. He saw Danny and fired a canister at him. Danny hovered between life and death for months, and had four operations performed on him without anesthetics. After he got well, Danny grafted on the Albany boats. One night he and his pals tried to get a mall's leather, but some western guns who were on the boat were looking for provender themselves and nicked the mall. Danny accused them of taking his property, and, as they would not give up, pulled his pistol. One of the western guns jumped overboard, and the others gave up the stuff. Danny was right, for that boat belonged to him and his mob. A few months after that event, Danny shot a mug, who had called him a rat, and went to San Antonio, Texas, where he secured a position as bartender. One day, a well-known gambler who had the reputation of being a ten-time killer began to shoot around in the saloon for fun. Danny joined in the game, shot the gambler twice, and beat the latter's two pals into insensibility. A few months afterwards he came to New York with $2,700 in his pocket, and he enjoyed himself, for it is only the New York City-born who loved the town. But he had better have stayed away, for in New York he met his mortal enemy, Splitty, who had more brains than Danny and was running a short while house in the famous gas house block in Hester Street. One night Danny was on a drunk, spending his $2,700, and riding around in a carriage with two girls. Beezy, one of the malls, proposed to go around to Splitty's. They went, and Beezy and the other girl were admitted, but Danny was shut out. He fired three shots through the door. One took effect in Beezy's breast fatally, and Danny was arrested. While in Tombs waiting trial, he was well treated by the warden who was leader of the Sixth Ward, and who used to permit Danny's wife to visit him every night. At the same time, Danny became the victim of one of the worst cases of treachery I ever heard of. An old pal of his, George, released from Sing Sing, went to visit him in the tombs. Danny advised George not to graft again until he got his health back, suggesting that meanwhile he eat his meals at his, Danny's, mother's house. The old lady had saved up about $250, which she intended to use to secure a new trial for her son. George heard of the money and put up a scheme to get it. He told the old woman that Danny was going to escape from the tombs that night and that he had sent word to his mother to give him, George, the money. The villain then took the money and skipped the city, thus completing the dirtiest piece of work I ever heard of. Good heavens, said Danny, when he heard of it. A study in black. Danny, poor fellow, was convicted, and after a few months, hanged. Another tragedy in Manhattan was the end of Johnny T., I had been out only a short time after my second bit when I met him on the Bowery. He was just back, too, and complained that all his old pals had lost their nerve. Whenever he made a proposition, they seemed to see twenty years staring them in the face. So he had to work alone. His graft was burglary, outside of New York. He lived in the city, and the police gave him protection for outside work. He was married and had two fine boys. One day, a copper, contrary to the agreement, tried to arrest him for a touch made in Mount Vernon. Johnny was indignant and wouldn't stand for a collar under the circumstances. 
he put four shots in the flyman's body. He was taken to the station house and afterwards tried for murder. The boys collected a lot of money and tried to save him, but he had the whole police force against him and in a few months he was hanged. A friend of mine, L., had a similar fate. He was a prime favorite with the lasses of easy virtue and was liked by the guns. One night when I met him in a joint where grafters hung out, he displayed a split lip given him by the biggest bully in the ward. It was all about a girl named Molly whom the bully was stuck on and on whose account he was jealous of L., whom all the women ran after. A few nights later, L. met the bully who had beaten him and said he had a present for him. Is it something good? asked the gorilla. Yes, said L., and shot him dead. L. tried to escape, but was caught in Pittsburgh and extradited to New York, where he was convicted partly on the testimony of the girl, whom I used to call Unlimited Molly. She was lucky, for instead of drifting to the Bowery, she married a policeman who was promoted. L. was sentenced to be hanged but he died game. I think kleptomania is not a very common kind of insanity, at least in my experience. Most grafters steal for professional reasons, but Big Sammy was surely a kleptomaniac. He had no reason to graft, for he was well up in the world. When I first met him, he was a standard bearer at a ball given in his honor, and had a club named after him. He had been a gin mill keeper, hotel proprietor, and theatrical manager, and had saved money. He had, too, a real romance in his life, for he loved one of the best choir singers in the city. She was beautiful and loved him, and they were married. She did not know that Sammy was a gun. Indeed, he was not a gun, really, for he only used to graft for excitement, or at least what business there was in it was only a side issue. After their honeymoon, Sammy started a hotel at a seaside resort where the better class of guns, gamblers, and vaudeville artists spent their vacation. That fall, he went on a tour with his wife, who sang in many of the churches in the state. Sammy was a good boxman. He never used puff, nitroglycerin, but with a few tools opened the safes artistically. His pal Mike went ahead of the touring couple, and when Sammy arrived at a town, he was tipped off to where the goods lay. When he heard that the police were putting it on to the hobos, he thought it was a good joke and kept it up. He wanted the police to gather in all the black sheep they could, for he was sorry they were so incompetent. The loving couple returned to New York, and were happy for a long time. But finally the wife fell ill and underwent an operation, from the effects of which she never recovered. She became despondent and jealous of Sammy, though he was one of the best husbands I have known. One morning he had an engagement to meet an old pal who was coming home from stir. He was late, and starting off in a hurry, neglected to kiss his wife goodbye. She called after him that he had forgotten something. Sammy, feeling for his money and canister, shouted back that everything was all right, and rushed off. His wife must have been in an unusually gloomy state of mind, for she took poison, and when Sammy returned, she was dead. It drove Sammy almost insane, for he loved her always. A few days afterwards he jumped out for excitement and forgetfulness, and was so reckless when he tried to make a touch that he was shot almost to pieces. He recovered, however, and was sent to prison for a long term of years. He's out again, and is now regularly on the turf. During his bid and stir all his legitimate enterprises went wrong, and when he was released there was nothing for it but to become a professional grafter. During the seven months which elapsed between the end of my second and the beginning of my third term, I was not a very energetic grafter, as I have said. 
Graft was good at the time, and a man with the least bit of nerve could make out fairly well. My nerve had not deserted me, but somehow I was less ambitious. Philosophy and opium and bad health do not incline a man to a hustling life. The excitement of stealing had left me, and now it was merely business. I therefore did a great deal of swindling, which does not stir the imagination, but can be done more easily than other forms of graft. I was known at headquarters as a dip, and so I was not likely to be suspected for occasional swindling, just as I had been able to do housework now and then without a fall. I did some profitable swindling at this time with an Italian named Valisa for a pal. It was a kind of graft which brought quick returns without much of an outlay. For several weeks we fleeced Valisa's countryman, Brown. I impersonated a contractor, and Valisa was my foreman. We put advertisements in the newspapers for men to work on the railroads or for labor on new buildings. We hired desk room in a cheap office, where we awaited our suckers who came in droves, though only one could see us at a time. Our tools for this graft were pen, paper, and ink, and one new shovel and pickaxe. Valisa did the talking, and I took down the man's name and address. Valisa told his countrymen that we could not afford to run the risk of disappointing the railroad, so that he would have to leave a deposit as a guarantee that he would turn up in the morning. If he left a deposit of a few dollars, we put his name on the new pick and shovel, which we told him he could come for in the morning. If we induced many to give us deposits using the same pick and shovel as a bribe, we made a lot of money during the day. The next morning we would change our office and vary our form of advertisement. Sometimes we met our victims at saloons. Valisa would be talking to some Italian immigrant who had money when I would turn up and be introduced. Treating all around and flashing a roll of bills, I could soon win the sucker's respect and confidence and make him ante up on any old con. One day in a saloon in Newark, we got an Italian guy for $150. Before he left the place, however, he suspected something. We had promised him the position of foreman on a gang of laborers, and after we got his dough, we could not let well enough alone and offered to give his wife the privilege of feeding the 60 Italians of whom he was to be the foreman. I suppose the Dago thought that we were too good, for he blew and pulled his gun. I caught him around the waist, and the bartender who was with us struck him over the head with a bottle of beer. The Dago dropped the smoke wagon, and the bartender threatened to put him in prison for pulling a rod on respectable people. The Dago left the saloon and never saw his money again. About this time, too, I had an opportunity to go into still another lucrative kind of swindling, but I didn't. It was not conscience, either, that prevented me from swindling the fair sex, for in those days all touches, except those made by others off myself, seemed legitimate. I did not go in for it because, at the time it was proposed to me, I had enough money for my needs, and as I have said, I was lazy. It was a good graft, however, and I was a fool for not ringing in on it. The scheme was to hire a floor in a private house situated in any good neighborhood. One of the mob had to know German, and then an advertisement would be inserted into the Herald to the effect that a young German doctor who had just come from the old country wanted to meet a German lady of some means with a view to matrimony. A pal of mine who put such an advertisement in a Chicago paper received no less than 145 answers from women ranging in age from 15 to 50. The grafters would read the letters and decide as to which ladies they thought had some money. When these arrived at the office, in answers to the grafters' letters, they would meet two or three men, impersonating the doctor and his friends, who had the gift of con to a remarkable degree. 
The doctor would suggest that if the lady would advance sufficient money to start him in business in the West, it would be well. If he found she had plenty of money, he married her immediately, one of his pals acting the clergyman. She then drew all her money from the bank, and they went to a hotel. There the doctor, leaving her in their room, would go to see about the tickets for the West, and never return. The ladies always jumped at these offers, for all German women want to marry doctors or clergymen, and all women are soft, even if they are so apt to be natural pilferers themselves. When I was hard up, and if there was no good confidence game in sight, I didn't mind taking heavy chances in straight grafting, for I lived in a dream, and through opium was not only lazy but reckless. On one occasion, a Jew fence had put up a plan to get a big touch and picked me out to do the desperate part of the job. The fence was an expert in jewels and worked for one of the biggest firms that dealt in precious stones. He kept an eye on all such stores, watching for an opening to put his friends the grafters next. To the place in question he was tipped off by a couple of penny waiters, who claimed it was a snap. He agreed with them but kept his opinion to himself and came to see me about it. I and two other grafters watched the place for a week. One day the two clerks went out together for lunch, leaving the proprietor alone in the store. This was the opportunity. I stationed one of my pals at the window outside and the other up the street to watch. If I had much trouble with the mark, the pal at the window was to come to my assistance. With red pepper, to throw if necessary in the sucker's eyes, and a good blackjack, I was to go into the store and buy a baby's ring for one dollar. While waiting for my change, I was to price a piece of costly jewelry, and while talking about the merits of the diamond, hit my man on the head with the blackjack. Then all I had to do was to go behind the counter and take the entire contents of the window, only a minute's work for all the costly jewels were lying on an embroidered piece of velvet, and I had only to pick up the four corners of the velvet, bundle it into a green bag, and jump into the cab which was waiting for us a block away. Well, I had just about got the proprietor in a position to deal in the blow, when the man at the window weakened and came in and said, Vix! I thought there was a copper outside, or that one of the clerks was returning, and told the jeweler I would send my wife for the ring. I went out and asked my pal what was the matter. He said he was afraid I would kill the old fellow, and that the comeback would be too strong. My other pal I found a block away. We all went back together to the fence, and then I opened on them, I tell you. I called them petty larceny barnacles, and came near clubbing them, I was so indignant. I have often had occasion to notice that most thieves who will steal a diamond or a front weaken when it comes to a large touch, even though there may be no more danger in it than in the smallest enterprises. I gave those two men a wide berth after that, and whenever I met them I sneered, for I could not get over being sore. The touch was a beauty, with very little chance of a comeback, for the police don't look among the pickpockets for the men who make this kind of touches, and I and my two companions were known to the coppers as dips. Just before I fell for my third and most terrible term, I met Lottie, and thought of marrying. I did not love her, but liked her pretty well, and I was beginning to feel that I ought to settle down and have a decent woman to look after me, for my health was bad, and I had little ambition. Lottie seemed the right girl for the place. She was of German extraction, and used to shave me sometimes at her father's barber shop where I first met her. She seemed to me a good, honest girl, and I thought I could not do better, especially as she was very fond of me. Women liked the spruce dips, as I have said before, and even when my graft had broadened, I always retained the dress, manners, and reputation of a pickpocket. 
Lottie promised to marry me and said that she could raise a few hundred dollars from her father, with which I might start another barber shop, quit grafting, and settle down to my books, my hop, and domestic life. One day she gave me a pin that cost nine dollars, she said, and she wouldn't let me make her a present. All in all, she seemed like a sensible girl, and I was getting interested in the marriage idea. One day, however, I discovered something. I was playing poker in the office of a hotel kept by a friend of mine when a man and woman came downstairs together and passed through the office. They were my little German girl and the owner of a pawn shop, a sheeny of advanced years. Suddenly, I realized where she had got the pin she gave me, and I began to believe stories I had heard about her. I thought I would test her character myself. I did, and found it weak. I did not marry her. What an escape! Every man, even a self-respecting gun, wants an honest woman, if it comes to hitching up for good. Soon after I escaped Lottie, I got my third fall for the stir. The other times that I had been convicted I was guilty, but on this occasion I was entirely innocent. Often a man who has done time and is well known to the police is rounded up on suspicion and convicted when he is innocent, and I fell victim to this easy way of the officials for covering up their failure to find the right person. I had gone one night to an opium joint near Lover's Row, a section of Henry Street between Catherine and Oliver Streets, where some guns of both sexes were to have a social meeting. We smoked hop and drank heavily and told stories of our latest touches. While we were thus engaged, I began to have severe pains in my chest, which had been bothering me occasionally for some time, and suddenly I had hemorrhage. When I was able, I left the joint to see a doctor who stopped the flow of blood, but told me I would not live a month if I did not take good care of myself. I got aboard a car, went soberly home to my furnished room, and was arrested. I knew I had not committed any crime this time, and thought I should of course be released in the morning. Instead, however, of being taken directly to the station house, I was conducted to a saloon and confronted with the sucker. I had never seen him before, but he identified me just the same as the man who had picked his pocket. I asked him how long ago he had missed his valuables, and when he answered three hours, I drew a long sigh of relief, for I was at the joint at that time, and thought I could prove an alibi. But though the rapper seemed to weaken, the copper was less trustful and read the riot act to him. I was so indignant I began to call the policeman down vigorously. I told him he had better try to make a reputation on me some other time when I was really guilty. Whereupon he lost his temper and jabbed me in the chest with his club, which brought on another flow of blood from my lungs. In this plight I was taken to the station house, still confident I should soon be set at liberty, although I had only about eighty dollars for fall money. I hardly thought I needed it but I used it just the same to make sure and employed a lawyer. For a while things looked favorable to me, for I was remanded back from court every morning for eight days on account of lack of evidence, which is almost equivalent to a turnout in a larceny case. Even the copper began to pig it, weaken, probably thinking he might as well get a share of my dough since it began to look as if I should beat the case. But on the ninth day, luck turned against me. The chief of detectives identified me as another man, whispering a few words to the justice, and I was committed under $2,000 bail to stand trial in general sessions. I was sent to the tombs to await trial, and I knew at last that I was lost. My character alone would convict me, and my lawyer had told me that I could not prove an alibi on the oaths of the thieves and disorderly persons who had been with me in the opium joint. 
No matter how confirmed a thief a man may be, I repeat, he hates to be convicted for something he has not done. He objects indeed more than an honest man would do, for he believes in having the other side play fair, whereas the honest man simply thinks a mistake has been made. While in the tombs, a murderous idea formed in my mind. I felt that I had been horribly wronged and was hot for revenge. I was desperate too, for I did not think I should live my bit out. Determined to make a half dozen angels, including myself, I induced a friend who came to see me in the tombs to get me a revolver. I told him I wanted to create a panic with a couple of shots and escape, but in reality I had no thought of escape. I was offered a light sentence if I would plead guilty, but I refused. I believed I was going to die anyway, and that things did not matter, only I would have as much company as possible on the road to the other world. I meant to shoot the copper who had beaten me with his club, District Attorney Alcott, the judge, the complainant, and myself as well, as soon as I should be taken into the courtroom for trial. The pistol, however, was taken away from me before I entered the court. I was convicted and sentenced to five years at Sing Sing. Much of the time I spent in stir on my third bit, I still harbored this thought of murder. That was one reason I did not kill myself. The determination to do the copper on my release was always in my mind. I planned even a more cunning revenge. I imagined many a scheme to get him and gloat over his dire misfortunes. One of my plans was to hunt him out on his beat, invite him to drink, and put thirty grains of hydrate of chloral in his glass. When he had become unconscious, I would put a bottle of morphine in his trousers pocket, and then telephone to a few newspapers telling them that if they would send reporters to the saloon, they would have a good story against a dope copper who smoked too much. The result would be, I thought, a rap against the copper, and his disgrace and dismissal from the force would follow. Sometimes this seemed to me better than murder, for every copper who is broke immediately becomes a bum. When my copper should have become a bum, I imagined myself catching him dead drunk and cutting his hamstrings. Certainly I was a fiend when I reflected on my wrongs, real and imaginary. At other times, I thought I merely killed him outright. End of chapter 12